0: I'd like to turn this morning to the book of Joel. Joel is right next to the book of Hosea that we spent the month of January in. So if you know where Hosea was, you know where Joel is. Joel's just uh, three short chapters. It'll take you about 12 minutes to read it. A very short book. Very powerful book. There's one passage of scripture in chapter two, rather lengthy passage, uh, beginning in two and verse 28, and going through the end of that chapter, verse 32. Uh, this passage is quoted almost word for word by the apostle Peter in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost saying that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he said, This is that it was spoken of by Prophet Joel. You have this passage that is quoted uh by the by the Apostle Peter, but then you have uh verse thirty-two of chapter two, when it says, and In Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Uh, And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. This is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. It's important for us to notice here, uh, just to kind of start out with in Joel chapter 2 and verse 32, that when he says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, that word needs to be delivered. And the reason that I point that out is, is there's some of these modern translations have changed that word delivered to saved. It's not saved. It's delivered. Because they're telling you that the term salvation itself means to be delivered. When Paul repeats this in Romans 10, it says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's telling you that salvation is deliverance. And that salvation that is deliverance is not always eternal. There is deliverance that we need here and now in this life. Every time somebody is delivered, that doesn't necessarily mean they're born again. But we do know that every time somebody is born again, they are delivered. That distinction needs to be made. Don't let people play with these words. This is uh, maybe what we might call the second of the minor prophets. And it is minor only in the amount of content that is written. It is not minor in the quality that is written, nor is it minor in the importance of what is written. It's been said that modern religion can be described as mile wide and an inch deep. I would would suggest that this describes a variety of people down through history. I would not say that religion today is any deeper or any more shallow than it has been in the history of mankind you can read through the Old Testament and find that there are times when Israel was closer to God than at other times. There are times where they were close to God and the Shekinah glory of God shone and and they had to hide their faces from Moses and they had to run out of the temple when God filled, filled the temple with His glory one time. And then there are other times when Israel was backslidden into a deplorable and desperate and sinful Condition They might have been a mile wide at that time, but they were only an inch deep in their devotion uh, to the Lord God. Also, I will recognize that there are a lot of people who are considered scholars on the Bible nowadays. I, I don't know that there's any man that is a true, full-on scholar. I think the more you study, the more you realize, the less you know. And I think that a lot of times people can muddy the waters in their explanations to make you think they are deep and intellectual and close to God. But words don't mean that. In studying in studying where we studied in Hosea and a few things that we want to look at uh, in Joel, maybe over the next few weeks, um, the validity of These Old Testament writings really are seen in the prophecies that they contain for the future and in the New Testament writers in their quotations of these Old Testament prophecies. Somebody may say, I've got a vision from God about the future. But if it never comes to pass, then that person is more than likely mistaken. The fact that either Jesus or Peter or Paul, somebody in the New Testament quotes what someone said in the Old Testament, that ought to give you reason to put uh, great authority on these words. And understand that these words, all of them, are of great importance. Keep in mind, at the end of John's Gospel, uh, the very uh, last few verses of John's Gospel, he said that if all the books that could have been written about all the things that Jesus said and did, if all the books could have been written about all the things that Jesus said and did, the world could not contain the whole of them. Evidently, he was a very busy person. Evidently, he was a very influential person. And if the world could not contain... All the books that could have been written. How important should we view the one book that was written? You might you might can notice um, that there'll be sort of a similar theme that goes through the book of Joel, that went through the book of Hosea, that went through the book of Isaiah, that went through, Isaiah, that went through any other book. Take your pick. Um, <clears throat> their messages often encompassed. A a call to repentance and the blessings that would follow if true repentance was engaged. You might very well say that in all of these books, from God's standpoint, there was a a rebuke. There was a a rebuke of some actions. There was a a rebuke of uh, some character. There was a rebuke of some laziness or some idleness And upon that rebuke, Israel had a choice. They could receive the message or they could reject the message. They could receive the message like King David did when Nathan the prophet came to him and said, Thou art the man. When David first first heard what Nathan the prophet had to say to him, this story about there was a rich man, We had a bunch of sheep and there was a poor man who had only one lamb. And and, and Nathan goes through this long, drawn out story about the rich man, instead of taking of his own, he took of his neighbors one lamb. And and David was furious about this. After David opened his mouth and condemned the rich man for what he had done, can't believe that he would act like that. Nathan said, Thou art the man, David. You're the one I'm talking about. Again, here's another illustration of what we we've, we've tried to impress upon ourselves over the last few weeks that when we read through history people do one of two things they either ignore it and say well that happened to them way back to them way back then or if I'd have been back there I'd have been different And the reality is, the bad news that is in the Old Testament, the bad news that is in the Bible that points its bony finger, points its bony finger at us and says, Thou art the man. And it's on that that we see, well, throughout throughout that whole situation in David's life, Psalm 51 is written. Psalm that he writes after his sin with Bathsheba is exposed, the child that she had conceived from that relationship dies. David writes Psalm 51. One of the things that he writes in there is that create in me a clean heart and renew within me a right spirit. And one of the things, though, that he also prays there in Psalms 51 is that the Lord would not take from him. Holy Spirit not not take David's spirit but the spirit of God that abides with us take not away from us thy holy Spirit restore unto us David David also prays out restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and you'll find you'll find in your own life when there's joy from the Lord that accompanies you You can endure some things that you thought were impossible. Well, David received the message that was brought forth. There was was then repentance that was seen in David's life. And from that, there was a restoration. There was a restoration of fellowship between him and the Lord. There was a restoration of, of other things that occurred. There was a rebuke that came. The message was received, there was repentance, and there was restoration. The opposite of that is there's a rebuke that comes, and there's a rejection of the message. So often when the seers and the prophets would prophesy to Israel, especially if you look in the book of Isaiah, and it says that they would say to the seers, See not, and to the prophets, Prophesy not, prophesy not unto us right things, prophesy unto us smooth things, prophesy deceit. You prophets, you seers, don't look for anything bad out there. Don't tell us how bad this is. Don't tell us how dreadful this is. Just tell us right things or tell us smooth things. Tell us comfortable things and let us just go on and be happy. You know, preacher, just come along and dump out a load of sheep food and go on about your business and stop meddling in my life. Is really what they were saying. And boy, you, you just can look through the history of Israel and see the disastrous choices that they made and the consequences when they rejected the message that came from God. Um, In the Old Testament it says that where there is no vision, the people perish. And so often so often when people read that, uh, they think, well, what is your view of the church? Where do you see the church in five years? Where do you see the church in ten years? How do you think the church needs to be functioning in the future? That's not the vision that's under consideration. It's not a looking to the future. It's not a hope for the future. In the Old Testament, when there was a vision, it was word from God is what it was. When there is no word from God, when there is no speaking from God, when there is no talking from God, the people perish. I believe it's in the... Uh, latter stages of the book of Judges, I think this is where it is, where uh, it says that there was no king in Israel, and therefore every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And we're we're a little bit like that in America with this uh, idea of relative morality, that morality is not a concrete, set-in-stone absolute. It's a fluid concept that uh, what is right to you may not be right to me, and what is right to me may not be right to you, and what we need to do is just live and let live. The only problem with that is uh, there's somebody who doesn't want to work in this world, and instead of working for what they get, they'd rather just go and take what's yours. Well, you can't just live and let live in that situation. If somebody was was to be, was to be shot breaking into somebody's house, the argument is often made, well, that's just unfair. You mean you're valuing your things more than you valued that person's life. No. That person valued my things more than they valued their life. So there has to be a set in stone, right and wrong, for a society to continue in a civil manner. If rules are constantly changing, then you really don't know who you are. You don't know where you're at and you don't know what you're doing. So Israel would oftentimes be rebuked by the Lord and instead of receiving the message, they would reject the message. And then, of course, in their rejecting of the message that came to them, they are essentially renouncing the God that they knew. Uh, New Testament talks about those who uh, turn away from the Lord that bought them turn away from the Lord that bought you, what in the world are you turning to? If if Jesus isn't your Savior and your Deliverer, who or what can save you from anything? And of course, as, as, as you come into the first century, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were constantly... Rejecting the message. They rejected the message of John the Baptist. They obviously rejected Jesus. They rejected anything he had to say. They mocked his apostles so that Jesus would finally, just shortly before he went to the cross, would be sitting on the hill looking at Jerusalem. He would say, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest them that are sent unto thee, how oft would I have gathered thy children unto me as a hen doth gather her chickens, but ye would not. Now, that, that passage is such a powerful it's such a powerful passage and so misunderstood jesus is not looking at a lost world saying how oft would i have gathered thee he says jerusalem how oft would i have gathered thy children but ye would not you see the past, you see you see the correlation there how oft would i have gathered the children but ye would not behold your house is left unto you, desolate. You shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, "Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord." You know that that's one, that's sort of a dreadful thing. That's kind of a little bit left over from Hosea. Uh, we didn't dis, we didn't discuss everything in, in Hosea, but you know there were a few times wherein the Lord told them, He says, "I will not judge your children for their whoredoms and for their indiscretions." And to me, that's, 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 that's a, that's a terrible thing to consider. Because I don't know which is worse. The fact that God judges me for what I did, or that He does not judge those around me, and I have to sit back and watch them in agony destroy their lives. Which one do you think would be worse? You know, when you're, um, <clears throat> Well, the last thing that occurs, I, I, don't want, I don't want to get off that little thing we were talking about, but the last thing that occurs when Israel renounces sort of God and their claim to being God's children is there's retribution. We know that the Lord sends the Roman army in AD 70 and destroys the city. And it's never been the same since. We don't want to be those people do that, that's not what that's not what we want to be. that's not what how we want not only our society to go but the local church here. because you'll notice a lot of times when the prophet prophesied to Israel, say in Hosea's day and in Joel's day, or be it in Amos's day. Amos is a, a fascinating study as Amos would oftentimes judge Israel, And because Israel had become so much like the nations around them, God would then just go ahead and judge the nations. And, and you see this, um, you see this buffer that exists in the book of Amos between the church and the nations that so long as the nation of Israel acted like God's people, God would preserve the nations around them for the sake of preserving Israel. But well, once Israel started going out and blending themselves and making themselves like all the other people, and there was no difference between Israel and all the other nations, God just judged everybody for everything that they'd done. And you'll see, oftentimes, even in our society, when the church sort of behaved itself, society sort of reverenced the church. But nowadays, you got so much corruption. Not only in politics, but you got it in the church as well. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading in, in the newspaper here just a few weeks ago where there was a, there was a man doing some contract work in a very popular church out in Texas, one of these big mega churches, you know, so you can have your best life now, you know. He's doing some plumbing work out there and he finds $500,000 hidden in the walls. Y'all, y'all read about that, right? Man, how ridiculous. Some of you did, some of you didn't. Welcome to our ivory tower here. Uh, You know, that causes a lot of people to question modern religion. It causes a lot of people to, to fall out with things like that. I don't think it's the pastor's fault. I use the word pastor in the loosest sense. It is not his fault that that has occurred. It's the ignorant congregation who will tolerate it. Who don't have enough sense to read the Bible and say, Are we like the Bible says we're supposed to be like? Stop having your ears tickled. Stop having your fancies delighted by the things of this world, is what I want to tell a lot of people. There are a lot of people who don't come here simply because we don't have enough entertainment for them and for their children. Because I've had people actually tell me, when I come to church, I don't want to have to deal with my kids. I want them to go to Sunday school. I want them to go to the playground so I can sit in there and in peace worship God. In Joel chapter 1, Let's just kind of, let's kind of get in the book before we go to the next point that we want to kind of address here. But in Joel chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, it says, The words of the Lord that came to Joel the son of Pethuel, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Do we not oftentimes hear people say, you know, I remember going to the association. I remember going to such and such meeting and they had to drag out chairs. wasn't room enough to stand. Or we had to set up a tent outside. wasn't enough room on the building on the inside. We had to go outside somewhere.
1: Well, in some cases, there's
0: two reasons for that. If you go back and you look at the church buildings back then, they were about half the size of our buildings now. So come on, give us a little bit of a break on this. Back then you had them little one-room school buildings that they they, they, they doubled as church on Sunday and they were the schoolhouse the rest of the week for the, for the neighborhood. So we've even got some of our churches now that are still about this same size that if you filled them with 50 people, there wouldn't be room enough to stand. So in some of those places that we went... Back then, they were smaller gathering houses. But I will say that whether you had 50 in some of our places now or you had 300 in some of our places now, there would be a difference. There's a difference between the amount of people that would actually show up in places back then and the amount of people that show up now. People call us fanatics. They call us fanatics because we may, you know, meet once a week or God forbid we're going to have a three day meeting. And all you're going to do is sit and listen to some man yell at you. Well, it's wintertime now, right? And in some places in America, it's snowing profusely, right? Global warming is just freezing us out. Uh, and if you've watched any professional football lately. You'll know in places like Green Bay, Wisconsin. The folks pile in there by the hundreds of thousands and they sit there with their little beanies on and their great big parkas on and their humongous gloves on and they pile up and they wrap up and they sit there while the snow piles up in their lap. They intentionally sit outside for four hours and watch their team lose. And they say, we're crazy. I dare say that if even some of our places nowadays, like I said, if we had just those small one-room churches, they still wouldn't be filled to, they still be filled to overflowing because the desire of human beings is different. See, he says here, number one, Give ear ye old men, inhabitants of the land. And he asked the question, has this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Verse 3, tell ye your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children another generation. How many generations are listed right there? Let's, let's pause and think. He says, he says, ye fathers. So you got the fathers. Tell your children. All right there's number two. And let your children tell their children and their children tell another generation so four generations here is what we what five maybe four to five generations that are they're listed here I know very few people that have five living generations in their families we had four at one time in our family we had we had a picture of uh Mimi and we had a picture of grandma and a picture of my wife and Laura Beth, when she was first born, we had four generations at one time. I don't know too many people that have five. I know that there are some. This is not something that needs to be just existing right now. This is something we want to exist for a long time. And one of the reasons, though, that the old men are supposed to teach uh, the, the younger men to teach other men is that when you're young... When you're young, sin and God are different. To a young person, sin and God are different. And and I mean this, well, what I may have viewed as fun or as an experiment, you know, when I was growing up, I view that now as a disaster and damaging in the life of my children. This God whom you would just come and hear about on Sundays and see people weeping about is different when you're older. It's different when you have difficulties and you have disasters that have arisen in your life. And that's what we mean by when you're younger, things are different. It's not that sin is different and God is different. It's your perspective of these things are different. And what is, is laid out here in the book of Joel and, and actually really much in the Old Testament is you have this recurring and revolving theme of disaster and deliverance. There's a disaster that Israel gets itself into, and, and you have then their need to be delivered. So they wind up down here in Egypt. Jacob picks up his family and he he follows his son uh, Joseph down there into Egypt. And he he lives there and dies there. And the family lives there and dies there. And Israel now begins to grow and multiply down here in this foreign land. They didn't really belong down there. They never should have been there. But they packed up. They moved to Egypt. They set up roots. And then after a period of 400 years, God has to send Moses to deliver them out of this heathen land. What you'll notice a lot of times is is the disasters that occur, say, here in the book of Joel. They're not a manufactured crisis by God. God does not manufacture crisis so that He can then come along and give you the answer or the cure to the crisis. Uh, there's a lot of things occurring in America right now where you might think, this seems to be manufactured by men. So they've caused a problem so that they can then solve the problem. But you'll find out a lot of times what the Lord does, He doesn't manufacture a crisis. He just allows or suffers things to continue on the way that they do. And they'll eventually end up in a disastrous situation, so that at that point you were brought to seeing your real need of God's the sake. There's another thing that, uh, there's another theme that sort of is seen throughout the book of Joel, uh, and that's the absolute unrivaled sovereignty of Almighty God in His creation. Um, God doesn't need, um, he doesn't need a great army, as in tanks and guns and human foot soldiers to get things done. He doesn't need uh, these types of things to overpower those that oppose him. So, for example, um, in the book of Exodus, there's ten flags brought upon the land. None of those plagues that are brought upon the land of Egypt are by human means. There's a plague of darkness and frogs and flies and lice and locusts. myrain. And then there's the mysterious death of the firstborn of all the families in Egypt. He used a lot of things at that time. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, when the Philistines have come up to fight against Israel, it says that the Lord thundered with a great thunder and discomfited the Philistines. So he's not even using animals or bugs or anything at that time. He just thunders really loud and scares these bold men to death. Then there's the time in Kings 6 where uh, he causes the Assyrian army to hear the sound of horses and of chariots. And there are no horses and chariots. God can use anything He wants to. To bring to naught those that oppose Him. And it's interesting how we may look at this and we look at the ten plagues and we look at the imagination of the, uh, the armies hearing things that aren't there. Y'all have never been laying in bed at night and said, what was that sound? Y'all ever been in your house during the thunderstorm and it it thunders so loud the whole house rattles? We, We chalk that up to Mother Nature just to the events of life without ever really thinking at times is this the Lord talking to us? See, in uh, the destruction that's laid out here in Joel doesn't come from uh, a vast invading human army. Actually, it's it's just a, a plague of locusts really is what happens. You look in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, That which the palmer worm hath lessed, Left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left hath the cankerworm eaten, and that which the cankerworm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Verse 6. For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. Here he calls them in verse 6, he says, A nation which is come up upon my land. If you notice in chapter 2 uh, and verse 25, the last half of it, uh, when he talks again about what the locusts have eaten, the cankerworm, the caterpillar, and the palmerworm worm, he calls them my great army which I sit among you. That's, that's 2.25. Uh, it, God does this frequently throughout the Bible when he refers to these animals as his great army or he gives them human characteristics. so For example, in the book of Proverbs uh, chapter 30, he says that the ants... Are a people not strong, yet they gather their food in the summertime, uh, and they have that which carries them through the wintertime. Uh, also there in Proverbs 30, he talks about the coney and calls them a feeble, a, a weeble, a feeble folk. The conies are but a feeble folk, yet they build their houses in, in the tops of the mountains and the tops of the rocks where you can't reach them. So he's constantly addressing He's constantly addressing the animals in life of having more sense than human beings. Human beings, the 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 thing that was created in creation in the image of God, are more like the image of God than any other creature that was ever created, and they act less and less, less and less like it than any other creature. Human beings created in the image of God do everything they can to run from that created image. And they hide themselves in dens and in caves and finally find themselves in a hole in the ground. They are really, really a ridiculous creature. What you have here... Another interesting thought that as he's talking about this great army that he has brought up, this army of locusts. We started with, well, we mentioned the locust in Exodus 10. got locusts mentioned here. If you turn to Revelation 9 and you've read through that book, and in Revelation chapter 9 you have the bottomless pit opened up in hell. And what's the thing that comes out of the bottomless pit that covers the sky but locusts? And they have these stingers in their tails. Well, locusts don't have stingers in their tails. Well, those in Revelation 9 do, which that animal is... You know, that's, that's a study for another time, but you'll notice there that they have the teeth. Uh, it, these locusts in Revelation 9 that come out of this bottomless pit that cover the sky and blacken and darken everything for their great number. They have the hair like women, faces like men, and... Teeth like lions' teeth. Can you think of anything that's popular in this world where the men have faces like men, they have hair like women, but the words that come out of their mouth are disastrous words? You know, popular music fits this description, and I won't. I won't get into that. You know. Uh, Charles Manson thought that the Beatles were speaking to him through their song, Revolution 9, telling him to turn to Revelation 9. That, that's just a that's a conspiracy theory, not for another time. Uh, but at any rate, you have here in uh, in Joel, you have this Palma worm, you have this locust, you have this canker worm, and you have this caterpillar described here. Um, you do enough reading on this, and you're going to come to the conclusion that a lot of people say that this is the four stages of the life of a locust from the very smallest to the adult portion of this. I I can kind of go with that a little bit um, because what you notice about the destruction that's laid out here in the book of Joel is the destruction is extensive, it's prolonged, and it's thorough. It's extensive, it's prolonged, and it's thorough from this standpoint. What the adult locust itself doesn't completely devour, the other three that come behind it will. And they really leave nothing in their tracks but devastation. And sometimes in life, it's sometimes it's not the big things that, that disrupt our lives. Sometimes it's just a bunch of little things that compound. Mama gets angry. Mama gets angry at the children for what? Why is Mama so angry? Well, how many times has she asked you to clean up your room? Has Mama ever asked you to clean up your room? Ask a three-year-old. What does he know? But how many times does she ask you know the room to be cleaned? Or how many times does she ask the dishes to be put away? Or how many times does she ask the laundry to be folded? Is it done the first time? Usually not. So that by the time she's tired of having to ask again, she blows her top, she yells, and then everybody wants to know what's wrong with Mama. I think God's a little bit like that. God will ask, God will intervene, God will be patient, God will be kind, and God brings the hammer down and everybody wants to know, well, why is God so mean? I don't know, why are you so deaf and dumb? Sometimes these little things, they just build up, they build up, they build up. And then it's just one calamity after another until disaster strikes. In chapter 1, so for example, he says that in verse 10, the field is wasted, the land mourneth. For the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, and the oil languishes. Uh, that sounds like a famine, doesn't it? Uh, notice also in verse 17 of chapter 1, the seed is rotten under their clods. You know what a clod is? You know, clods of dirt? Uh, when, when the farmer plows his field, and then he sows his field, and you kind of cover that back over, what causes the seed to rot under the ground? Lack of rain. There's no rain to water that and the seed rots. So not only is there a famine, but there's also a drought. There's a famine because there's a drought. Verse 17, the garners are laid desolate and barns are broken down for the corn is withered. The garners are, are the grain bins where you store your harvest. They're broken down because there's nothing, they're not being used. Uh, verse 19 describes a fire that burns all the trees of the field. And verse twenty describes yet again another drought. While there not to be a fire, when everything gets dry as a powder keg, uh, the least little spark of anything ignites the whole forest. California is not burning down because of global warming. California is burning down because they are not tending their field properly. They've got a huge overgrowth of trash. That they're not getting out of there because we don't want to pollute the air. You know, this is interesting to me. The world's been around for what? 65 billion years. How do you think people in the past dealt with their trash? They burned it in a pile. But we, the intellectuals, have decided you can't burn anything because it's going to blow a hole in the ozone. And what are we doing? And we're not burning. We're not burning anything. The least little spark that comes along, it's burning things. So things are still burning. Wow. Sometimes these people out here are like three year olds in a china shop. You just wish they'd keep their hands to themselves and stop touching things. Now, I digress. Um, one of the things that's also is, no, is, is noticed here in the book of Joel throughout the destruction uh, that comes along is that there is a loss of life's luxuries. Notice verse uh, 5 of chapter 1. Verse 5 of chapter 1, it, as, he, as he calls the elders to attention and says, you know, pay attention to make your kids pay attention. And then the second thing he calls to their attention is you weren't invaded by the Chaldeans and you weren't invaded by the Babylonians and you weren't invaded by the Syrians. You were invaded by bugs. And you couldn't stop it. They were so great without number. That doesn't mean you can't number them. It just means there's so many of them it would be impossible to number them because the time you get these counted, they done moved and somebody else is in its place. And it's just mass confusion everywhere. The first thing he says is, "Awake ye drunkard, wake ye drunkards, weep and howl." What? These are the people we're talking to first. Awake ye drunkards and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. These are the people we're talking to. Absolutely. What is the purpose for the drunkards in the drinking of wine? There's two reasons for this. There's a festive attitude and there's a forgetful attitude. Now, I do realize that Paul told Timothy in the New Testament, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy often infirmities, that there are there are. Healthful properties of red wine. I realize that. It amazes me that the teetotalers who evidently just don't read the Bible. But you got a group out here who they do nothing but party and play. Then you got another group out here that they do nothing but drink to forget. The question. I think that is being asked about this is when he says, Awake ye drunkards, weep and howl. And he is asking, What do you use to numb yourself to the troubles of this world and to the voice of God? There's a lot of people who numb themselves to the voice of God because they think they're doing okay because they live in a fine big house and they drive fine cars. And they have food on their table. Oh, I don't need God. Who do you think has given you the ability to live in the house and buy the house and drive the car and have food to put in your refrigerator? Who do you think has made that possible? God Himself. And we've seen in the last two years how that when men will get into something and they will overreact and they will panic, how we're now wondering, are our shelves ever going to be restocked? But now here's here's a query for you. Here's a question to you. I go down the, the, the grocery aisle and there's no bread over here. Or I go down the... There's no frozen waffles over here. Or I go down the back aisle and there's no there's no bottled water down here. We can't find this type of stuff, can we? But the candy aisle is just stacked from end to end. They can't get our water to us. They can't get our bread to us. They can't get our, our meat to us. But they can get our, our Valentine's candy to us. Where did all that stuff come from? Who manufactured it and who drove it here? I tell you what, why don't we pay the driver to drop off the candy in, in the ditch and go get some real food? How about that? I think we've seen that when, when men put their hands to things in a panicked way, It usually devolves. So he says, Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, for it's cut off from your mouth. Um, The locusts that have come in and have devoured these vines, the locusts that have come in and and stripped the trees bare, as as it lays out here in this first chapter, um, there are no grapes on the vines. The reason that there are no grapes on the vines, there are no vines for them to be on. And the reason that there are no vines growing is that they destroyed the branch that the vine grows from. It's a... Um, well, well, Nancy, let's say it was trickle-down economics. A lot of folk want to kick off on some of the things that people have tried to put in the past, but... Trickle down economics is real, because trickle down suffering is real also. If you destroy the branch, there'll be no vine. If you destroy the vine, there'll be no grape. And if you destroy the grape, there'll be no food that comes from it. It's just that simple. And what the Lord is saying to these folks, uh, you know, you don't have to be—you don't have to be a drinker to be to be drunk on something. Um, you can be intoxicated with a lot of things. So, for example, uh, in here, Joel 1, Joel 2, there's a time where they they say to the elders, uh, call for a solemn assembly and fast. And there was a time when uh, a man in Matthew 17 brought his son possessed with the devil to the disciples Begging the disciples to cast out this devil. Jesus is Jesus up on top of a mountain in Matthew 17 with uh, Peter, James, and John being transfigured. Showing them things that are just absolutely marvelous. And Peter's too busy talking. Not listening and looking. Finally, they come down off the mountain and the man is still down there with his afflicted son. And he says, you know, we... We begged your disciples to, to heal him and cast out this demon, and they couldn't. What's the problem? Jesus says, this kind go without not, but by prayer and fasting. You can fast from a lot of things in life. We automatically think food when we think fasting, because sure, there are some of us that could stand to fast a little bit. You should probably just go real fast, by the fast food. But you can also fast from entertainment, TV, sports. Nothing wrong with kids playing sports, but 95% of the children that are playing sports nowadays are not going to be the next Michael Jordan. But parents will sacrifice 20 years of a child's life, trotting them off to ball games every Friday, every Saturday, and now on Sundays. For what? Oh, we've got to get them well-rounded. There may come a time where those things are taken from us. Then what do you have? Oh, yeah, that's already occurred. You can fast from a lot of things. The thing that people fast from the most, though, is church attendance and devotion to the Lord. See, we have freedom in America to come and go as we please right now. We have freedom to come and go and do what we want for right now. And I'm all for us having our freedoms. Uh, But I I listened to a man the other day, he said, You know, you you need to stop wagging your tongue about your freedoms. And start talking about your responsibilities. You have the freedom as a free individual that when we leave church here to go and do most anything you want to and stay out as long as you want to. Nobody's going to, you're, most of y'all are adults in here. Most of y'all are adults. Some of y'all are grown up and you have the freedom to go and do what you want to do. I mean, you ain't even got to go home tonight, right? I mean, when you were younger, wasn't that just the joy? I can't wait till I move out. I'm going to stay out as late as I want to and stay up as long as I want to. Nobody's going to tell me when to go to bed and nobody's going to tell me when to eat my broccoli. I mean, wasn't that just great? And and now that I'm adult, I can stay out as long as I want to. But the responsibility is, I got to get up and go to work, anymore. and I can't go. At 48 years old. Without sleep like I used to when I was 21. None of y'all ever stayed up for 24 or 36 hours straight, did you, when you were younger? And it didn't bother you the next day? Woo! Try that now. Where are you going to be? I'll be at work. In body only. If I make it. One of the things that... Uh, one of the things also that's, that's laid out here, um, I'll go ahead and just get to it real quick, like in, uh, because of the famine, because of the drought, because of the fire, you also come into something else. You come into an economic collapse. Um, notice in verse nine of chapter one, he says that the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The meat offering and the drink offering are cut off. Well, that's because there's a, a drought and a famine in the land. The meat offering and the drink offering, they, they can't be made then with the grapes, and they can't be made with the flour, and they can't be made with oil anymore. But there's something else to this. The meat offering, and you can read this in the book of Leviticus chapter 2. You can go back and read the first three verses of Leviticus chapter 2 about this meat offering. And you'll find that when the meat offering was bought to the priest, the priest took a portion out of that for himself and offered the rest of it to the Lord. So what the sacrifices the people made that were brought to the temple, they were also not only sacrifices to the Lord, but they were also sustenance for the priests. The people supported the priests through their sacrifice. We have lost the reverence for support of the ministry in America today. And when there are no people here who support the priest, I guarantee you the priest will mourn. If he don't, his wife will. Now, oh, you're preaching on money. <laughs> Come on and pastor a primitive Baptist church if you think we're preaching for money. You know that ain't true. But I heard Elder Glenn Blanchard say one time to a congregation he was talking to, he says, look, you sit out there and you live off all my spiritual work that I've done this week. I ought to be able to live next week off the natural work that you did this week. It's a simple trade-off. I mean, how many of our congregations would work three jobs to make ends meet and still be at church on Sunday? Ponder that. Because I know that there are people who only work one job and don't come every time. The There's a complete economic collapse that's laid out in Joel chapter 1. You say, well, well, this has been pretty dreadful. How are we going to get through this? I'm going to give you two, two scriptures. Uh, well, while you're in Joel, just turn over and read Joel chapter 1 verse 14. He says, Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God, and cry unto the Lord. There's a pretty good start that the Lord gives. And actually, if I had a theme, if I had a theme to lay, to lay out on Joel or a theme verse uh, that, that defined the hope that's in Joel. It's actually 2.25 that I read from earlier. I read the bottom half of it to you earlier. I didn't read the top half. The very first words of Joel 2.25 are, I will restore to you the the years that the locusts have eaten. Oh, my. Can we not look back on our own life and realize that there's been a lot of years that have been wasted in the church and in our life? We look back on our life and we see that the locusts of this world have just eaten away a lot that goes on. In our day and in our life. But when I was when I was thinking about this, there was another scripture that came to mind. Uh, And if I was to tell you which one it was, most of you'd probably know it. 2 Chronicles 7.14. Y'all know that one? It's on bumper stickers everywhere, it's on churches everywhere. If my people, right? Which are called by my name, shall humble themselves. Right? Back up. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And verse eleven. This is astounding. Second Chronicles seven eleven says, Then thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord. Oh. Oh, Solomon has built the house of God now. David's dead, Solomon's king. Solomon's built this grand temple. This is the first thing that's addressed to Solomon after the temple of God is built. Oh, let's find out what he says. Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. It's talking about his own house. He, he spent uh, seven years in building the Lord's house and 14 years in building his own house. He took twice as long to build his house as he did the Lord's house because he spent more time building the Lord's house than he did his own house. mistake we all make. And all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his house, he prosperously affected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. Verse 13. Tell me if you hear anything familiar. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain. Hmm? Or if I command the locust to devour the land. Familiar? or if I send pestilence among the people that's, that's disease and, and affliction that often comes from drought and famine then if I do these things if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open, and my ears attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever in mine eyes and mine hearts shall be there perpetually. Wouldn't y'all want that for this place? Wouldn't y'all want the Lord to say, I have chosen this as a house of sacrifice. And I have chosen this that my name would be here forever. And that my eyes and heart would be there perpetually." you. You say, but the church of Ephesus doesn't exist. The, the church at Laodicea doesn't exist. None of those churches in the first century exist. That's true. But you know, if the Lord was to send a revival here, starting right now, and it lasts 40 years, that would take out most of us that are in here. It would be the rest of our life. And then these young children that are growing up, you know, some of them would be 50, some of them would be 60, some of them would be 40. They'd have the opportunity to start again. You think how great that would be if we had a revival that lasted in this in this house forty years? That would, that would walk every one of us in here that are above twenty, probably to the grave. What a great time. The Deliverance from the disaster that's laid out in Joel 1 is very simple. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to put aside things that are not necessary. The government told us two years ago that there was a group of people in America that were not essential. They deemed the church not essential. A lot of churches got angry about that. And those who love the church should have gotten angry about that. But what should have made us even more angry is that many years the church itself has deemed God unessential. That He's not a genie that we rub once in a while when we need our gift. He's our Father. He's a Father that provides a roof over our head and clothes on our back and food in our stomach every day. Are we going to hear the message? Are we going to receive the message? Are we going to make an attempt to Humble ourselves and come before him and beg that he spared his people. That there would be no reproach among the heathens. That's the question that I'll leave you with today. Thank you for your good and patient attention.